good to see each of you tonight on a rather inclement weather evening, but we're glad you're here tonight and we're going to study God's Word together and hopefully be able to be encouraged and built up by considering what God has to say. Last Sunday evening, I began a series of lessons on battle for belief, recognizing that you and I really are in a war for the hearts and the minds of people. And in that lesson, I made reference to the fact that there is a stair step, if you will, that you begin where people are in their understanding. The very beginning is to understand that there is a God. From that, you have to prove that Jesus, or the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then that Jesus is the Christ, and then finally, the nature of His church. In order for us to accomplish this, we're going to have to take steps along the way. And tonight's lesson is going to be on the subject of God is. And by way of introduction, I'd like for you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Jeremiah. And I'd like for us to go to chapter 10 of Jeremiah. And let us look at verses 1 through 16. In my judgment, this is a perfect place for us to start our study for this evening. Jeremiah begins by saying, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of a workman with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree. And they cannot speak, they must be carried, because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, your name, you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates. It is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of craftsmen and the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, 
the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power, and he has established the world by his wisdom, and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood. And there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. I know that's a rather lengthy reading, but I thought it was very important to establish in our minds to begin with, there are things that are called gods that are no gods. They're not real. You don't have to worry about them. On the other hand, there is the true, and notice this phrase, the living God. Of Him you should be afraid of His wrath, His indignation, His power, and His might. As Jeremiah pictures this, so do all the writers from Genesis to Revelation. The picture of the living God. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, But sanctify in your hearts Christ Jesus as Lord, being ready always to give an answer to every man that asks the reason of hope that is within you, yet with meekness and fear. Our issue tonight is that we have to be ready to tell the person who does not believe in God, here are our reasons. But it is not just those who are alien sinners. We recognize that some of our own, whether it is they have sat at the foot of a professor who is a godless infidel, or whether it is just they cannot look at life in proper framework, they have allowed themselves to no longer believe in the living God. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, Beware lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief Falling away from the living God. Falling away from the living God. Paul and Barnabas, when they were on that first missionary journey, and they came to Lystra. As we discussed last week in Acts 14 and verse 15, they challenged these men by saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are of the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. 
Tonight, what I would like for us to do is to look at three things. When you ask, how do you know that there's a God? There are three classical arguments that are given. They are, number one, the argument from cause. Number two, the argument from design. And number three, the argument from morality. And what we want to do tonight is to just very briefly explore these three, and then we'll draw our lesson to a close. To begin with, the argument from cause. Do you know how God made this world? He made it in such a way that there is a law of nature called the law of cause and effect. It's expressed in the Bible by this, Hebrews 3, verse 4, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. We see cause and effect every day in our own lives. We experience it ourselves. We look, and if we're walking along the beach and we see footprints in the sand, we know that someone has been there. Sometimes confession is good for the soul. When I was a little boy, my grandfather and I would go to Sullivan, Alabama, and he'd say, Tony, there's been a train through here. And I'd say, really? How do you know? He said, don't you see its tracks? I'd fall for that one every time. You see the tracks. Cause and effect, you know that. Experience has taught us that for every effect, there has to be, now notice this word, an adequate cause. Something that really brought it about. Something that is a full explanation. How can one explain the existence of man or even the existence of the universe itself. Well, here's the way we reason. I'm here. I know I'm here. Nobody has to tell me that. I can see who I am. I can feel. There's actually a word for that. It's called sentience. And because I am self-aware and I know that I did not create myself, I look to someone before me and I come back to my parents. And that's an adequate cause. I look to their parents for their cause. But how far back do you go? You see, you can only go back so far because matter is not eternal. So there must be a first cause or an uncaused cause. Now, if you're reading in literature, this is called the cosmological argument sometimes, based on the cosmos or the world. And here's the way the logical formation that they put it in the books. Things exist. If it is possible for things not to exist, whatever has the possibility of non-existence and yet exist has been caused. I know that's a long way of putting it, but it says that everything that is not necessary has a cause. You cannot have an infinite number of causes because if you do that, you have no real cause together. Since the universe exists and it must have a cause, there must be a first cause. There must be a necessary being, and that necessary being is God. Now, this is in harmony with science. 
things that we know to be true. You know, there's a law of science that matter remains constant unless it's acted upon by an outside force. Things don't move by themselves. You may have to take your finger and push something to make it move. You may use magnetic force to make things move. You can may use the wind. You can even use heat to make things move. But in order for things to move, there has to be a cause. But now someone says, but now you've got a good explanation. What about evolution? Evolution could have caused, well, let's see if that's true. Evolution, rather than being in harmony with laws, known laws of science, are in conflict with them. If time permits and the Lord lets this world turn next Sunday evening, we're going to discuss the theory of evolution as compared to the Bible. And the theory of evolution is in conflict with the second law of thermodynamics, which I'm going to summarize here real quickly as saying it means that things are wearing out. It's actually a little more complex than that, but it means that things are wearing out, running down. You may or may not know there's some really good points to make here that evolution is not scientific. But there's a lot of other things. There's no such thing as spontaneous generation, something that all of a sudden just appears. But you've got to have that for evolution to be true. There's no intermediate life forms. You know, they'll tell you that this animal over here changed into this animal over millions of years. Well, if it changed from here to here, then you've got to have something in between. You know what? You can't find any of those. Isn't that ridiculous? There's no continuing evolution. You can't look around and see a monkey that's dragging its knuckles and then one day it stand up and start speaking to you in a known language. You don't see that taking place. I thought that's rather interesting. And I tried to go read on the atheist websites about how they would deal with the argument from cause. Let me give you their best argument. And if you don't smile or giggle under your breath, I'll be surprised. They believe that the explanation for the first cause is the Big Bang Theory. And one of them said to talk about things prior to the Big Bang is meaningless because they say the Big Bang Theory created, brought into existence both space and time. Well, I'm sorry, I want to talk about something before the Big Bang Theory. Like, for instance, what set of events would cause a Big Bang? You've got to ask that question. What were the elements of the Big Bang composed of? And where did they come from? You see, if you have a Big Bang, all you do is have a Big Bang, but there's something that had to have caused it. It's not an adequate cause for the effect that we have. When you step back and you look at it objectively, there is one and only one explanation. It's found in Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The second argument is called the argument from design. And if you're actually reading in the books, it's called the teleological argument. It's expressed in the Bible in several passages. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are Your works! In your wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Do you see the big picture of what David is saying? Brother Eddie read to us a few moments ago from Romans chapter 1. He talked about the things that were manifest to them. God manifested it or showed it to them. And verse 20 is your key verse there. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. The big picture is you look at this created world and ask the question, how did it get here? In Acts 14, verse 17, again from Lystra, Paul and Barnabas said, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Well, this argument from design says it's inconceivable that this world could have just happened. Let me give you some illustrations I think are worth thinking about. You may or may not know that our government here in the United States sent two rovers to the planet Mars. The first one was called Spirit. The second one was called Opportunity. Spirit has already done its job. It's already run out of juice and it's no longer operable. Opportunity is still sending back data every day. You can go to NASA's website and look and see the pictures that are being sent back there. You may or may not know why it is there. It is there to try to see if there are indications that life is either now present or ever has been on Mars. They want to be able to find water to see if there could have been anything that could have sustained life. Now, I want you to imagine tomorrow morning that rover is moving along and it turns and it turns its camera and it sees a house with doors and windows. What do you think the headlines would read the next day? Intelligent life has been found on Mars. Why would they say that? If they found a house on Mars, I can tell you why they would say that. Because they would know that there's no set of circumstances where the winds could blow just right and the heat could bake that earth and things just rumble up and create a house with doors and windows. That just doesn't happen. I don't care how many years you give it. William Paley, who lived from 1743 to 1805, 
put it like this. He said, if a man was walking through a field and he finds a watch, he knows that watch didn't happen. It had a watchmaker. There's so many wonders that are a part of this universe that it's ridiculous to conclude that it just happened. For instance, do you realize the speed of the rotation of our earth is just perfect? If you slowed it down any at all, some people would freeze to death on one side of the earth while others roasted. It's got to be at a certain speed. Can't be too fast. Can't be too slow. Have you ever thought about the rain cycle that God set in order? You have water in the oceans. You have waters in rivers. You have waters in lakes. But as the heat of the sun heats it up, it becomes vapor that ascends. When it heat, heat, hits that cold air, it then turns back to rain or sometimes to sleet or snow. But then it's redistributed. And people are then able to grow crops. It cleans the air. You see, God designed a system, if you will, that works perfectly. Consider the delicate balance that exists between the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom. We, as animals do, ingest the air. We use the oxygen and we breathe out the carbon dioxide. The plants, they breathe in or they absorb the air and they put back out the oxygen. And you see the balance that God creates here. Or as David said in Psalm 139, verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and that my soul knows very well. Consider the human body. You could take a lot of time to talk about just the marvels of the human body. Just consider the cardiopulmonary system where every one of you right now are breathing in oxygen. It's going into your lungs where it is being, it is oxygenating the blood, which your heart is pumping to all parts of your body and is refreshing it. You stop the pump, and it doesn't matter how much oxygen you put in, you're going to die. You stop the oxygen and it doesn't matter how well that pump pumps your heart. You're going to die. You look at man's physical body and David said, we are fearfully, we are wonderfully made. We are designed by a designer who knows us better than we know ourselves. Very quickly, the third proof comes from that of morality. You know, there's a lot of things in life that I would like to do. One thing that I'd really love to do is I'd love to be able to ask the questions of the lamestream media. I know y'all think I mispronounced that, but the mainstream media wants to tell us what's right and what's wrong. And I'd like to ask some questions, some of it very relevant to recent things. 
If I could ask them, I would ask things like, the recent shooting of those children in Newtown, Connecticut, was that morally wrong? I know you know the answer to the question, that question. What about rape? Where a man forces himself upon a woman, is that wrong? If it is, what makes it wrong? What about abortion? What about homosexuality? What about a host of other hot topics? The question is, how would anyone know that something is either right or wrong? And there have been a few of the atheists who have said, yeah. For instance, Fodor Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. And that was repeated by Jean-Paul Sartre. If there's no God, then everything is permissible. When Hitler and the Germans in World War II murdered six million Jews, what law did they violate? You need to think about that. It wasn't the law of Germany that they violated because according to the Fuhrer, he's the leader of that empire. He is the law. That was the law to kill them. Could we, if we can change from saying that taking a child inside the mother's womb and killing it, abortion, before 1973 was illegal and sinful and immoral, and then after the Supreme Court says, okay, it's okay now morally, then there is nothing in and of itself that is intrinsically, that is in and of itself, moral or immoral. And so really, whether it is shooting little children in a school or killing a baby, or raping a woman, it then all becomes a matter of opinion, either of one individual or a collective group of individuals. But you say, oh, they surely don't believe that. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 23. I think I have the answer of why people won't come out and say, that rape would be morally right or other things be morally right. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 23. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you will tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven, or was it, where was it from? Was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
I'd suggest to you that the media, Hollywood, much of academia, believes that there is nothing really intrinsically in and of itself immoral. But they're not going to say that. Because they know that if they came out and they advocated, well, no, this is not morally wrong, people would turn on them in a heartbeat. So what they do, they try to carefully change the opinions of people to agree with them, which is exactly what these people did with Jesus. They would not answer because Jesus put them in that position. I'll point out to you that in the Bible there is a moral code. This code existed before the law of Moses. This code has existed among all cultures. In Romans chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, going through verse 16, I'm not going to read that at this moment, but I will point out to you that even the people who did not have the law did by nature the things of the law. Did by nature the things of the law. We live in a society that it doesn't matter whether in the deep recesses of South America or Africa or Southeast Asia. Murder is wrong. Lying is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Where does this moral code come from? It doesn't come from our opinions. It comes from the fact that God by nature gave us a system of morality. It's innate. If you have a law, you must have a lawgiver. If you have morality, you must have a God for that morality to have any authority with it. I feel like I look at the clock and I realize I have just barely dealt with each one of these, but there's much more to be said. But when you put the argument from cause, the argument from design, and the argument from morality there, there's no way to deny that there is a God in heaven a living God. Jeremiah called upon men to honor and respect and worship that true God. And that's what we do tonight. Are you following the true God of heaven? If you're not, you can. He invites you to believe in Him and His Son, Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and be baptized. If you're one of God's children and maybe your faith has begun to waver, you need some, some encouragement, we can provide it for you. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, would you come as we stand and sing?